0: All right, at this time each week, we seek to hear from God as he speaks to us, as his word is read, that's the Bible, and as it's preached. And so that's what we want to do again today. I'm going to invite Sajan to come and lead us in the public reading of scripture, and then we'll preach from that passage together.
1: Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, Today's scripture reading is from Psalms 84. Uh, it is located on page 493 in the Black Bibles that's located in the, underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, again, Psalms 84. If you are able to do so, please stand with me as I read uh, the scripture this morning. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altar, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of the anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God and then dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from us, from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The word of the Lord, you may be seated.
0: Let's pray together. Father, we are in such need of you to be gracious and merciful to us, to visit us by your spirit, through your word, and to produce in us things that we cannot muster up in ourselves. We cannot produce in ourselves love for you, desire for you, and so we come poor and needy Come produce the very things that are required in us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in seminary, I was taught that every sermon needs an introduction. So here you go. Today we are preaching from Psalm 84. That's it. That's all I got today. Our task for today, our roadmap is, we're gonna try and preach from Psalm 84 just a few of the verses from that psalm because we wanna consider this topic of love his presence more. And I think this psalm will help us. And after that, we don't wanna leave these thoughts high up in the air, we wanna bring them as close to the ground as we can. And so I'm gonna invite Pastor Binu and just a few folks from Sebmar Road to come and share some thoughts of what it looks like to actually seek God's presence day to day In their practical life and then we want to respond in prayer. So that's what we're getting after today. Two things from Psalm 84 that I think will be helpful to us as we seek together to love God and love his presence more. Here's the first. Psalm 84 shows us that Christianity is more than intellectual assent to a set of beliefs but a deep desire for God and his presence. All right, that's a mouthful, but hear it again. One of the things that this psalm will show us is that real faith, authentic Christianity, real, genuine, saving faith is more than just intellectual assent to a set of beliefs, but a deep desire for God and his presence. Now, I imagine that you understand what I mean by that, but what I'm simply trying to communicate is Our faith, real Christianity, biblical faith, is more than just being able to check off some boxes on a theological questionnaire. Like if I gave you a theological quiz and said to you, do you believe in God? And you nod yes to that. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And you nod and say yes to that. Do you believe in heaven and hell? And you nod and say yes to that. That if I gave you a quiz long enough and you got 100 on that test, that doesn't make you a Christian. The reason is... That later in the Bible, in the New Testament, a writer named James will say things like, you believe that there's one God? Well, even the demons believe that, and they're going to hell. That even a devil of hell could check on the same boxes you check and still be going to hell. In fact, while we were saying the Nicene Creed, I was trying to think to myself, is there any line in here a devil in hell wouldn't be able to say as true? Right, Any line that they'd say, no, 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 I don't believe there's one God who created everything. And therefore, whatever it means about what Christianity is, it means that it's more than just a list of beliefs, a set of doctrine, a creed that you might subscribe to, that you might give an intellectual nod to, or a, a mental assent to. Christianity, real biblical faith, is a religion of desire. It's what you want and, and you see, examining your desires might be one of the most helpful things you do today in exposing where you really are. Because while you can fake a lot of things, while you and I can fake what we say, while you and I can fake what we do, we can get so good at faking it, we can fake ourselves. We can deceive ourselves. But our desires have a way of not being able to be fake. Because at the end of the day, what you want is really down in there. And what you really want can expose your spiritual condition. What do you really want? More than anything else in the world, what is it you desire? And how you answer that question can surface for you, expose for you, whether or not you have real biblical faith. Because the way the psalmist in Psalm 84 would answer the question of what do I want more than anything else, his answer would be God. He not only believes in God, he desires God. He delights in God. He wants God more than anything else. In fact, you can't read Psalm 84 and not see desire and not hear yearning, longing, A fainting for God. In fact, let me just read you the first four verses. Here's what it says How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my God and my King, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Just listen, and you can hear desire. Pay attention, and you can see longing. He says that he wants to dwell where God dwells. He wants to live where God lives. He wants to make his home in the home of God. He wants his address to be wherever God is. The address of his home is wherever God is. You can hear it. He longs, his soul does. He faints for the courts of the Lord. So much so that he even looks... And speaks with a certain envy towards birds. Do you hear it? He says, even the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow builds a nest. A place to lay her young by your altars, O Lord of hosts. Now that description itself should tell us something about God. Consider this with me. What does it say about God that creatures like these birds, like sparrows and swallows, can cozy up in God's presence? can build a home in God's dwelling, can make a nest where God lives. I mean, you think of that. In the Bible, you should know that sparrows are essentially worthless birds. Jesus has this offhand passing comment where he once says, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? I mean, you can't get anything for a penny. You can't buy a stick of gum for a penny. And he's saying you can get two sparrows for a penny because in the Bible, these are the worthless birds. They're not majestic eagles. They're not peaceful doves, they're worthless sparrows. And yet the worthless of all creatures, the humblest and leanest of all the creatures, find a home with God. The swallow, one commentator said, the swallow is a bird that's always fluttering everywhere, never tires, always flying everywhere, but the restless bird finds its rest in the presence of God. And the point of the psalm is to drive home, if almighty God, is that kind of a host to to the most meager and mangy of birds. What kind of host will he be to you who was created in his image and his likeness? Because at the end of the day, a sparrow or a swallow can look up to God as its creator, but you, child of God, look up to him as father. Are you not worth more than two sparrows? Are you not worth more than the swallows? And yet if our heavenly father provide such hosting and hospitality and lodging to the most mangy of birds, what will his welcome be for you, son or daughter? How are you invited into his home and into his presence? How are you invited to cozy up? Or do you imagine dad will be good to the mangy bird, but deny a son and a daughter? No, this psalmist begins to think even the swallows and the sparrow, and as he speaks of them, you can almost trace a hint of envy, like jealousy. Even the sparrows build a nest, and the swallows make a home near your altars. It, it's sort of like this. You know that scene in Shakespeare with Romeo and Juliet where Romeo's down below, and Juliet's up in the balcony, and he looks with longing at this girl that he loves, and there's this line that he says. I, I wrote it down because otherwise I have no idea. He says, he says this. He says, see how she leans her cheek upon her hand. And then watch this line. Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand that I might touch her cheek. That's a line, right, brothers? (laughs) But what's he saying? He's saying he would trade his whole being if he could just be that glove because to be that glove would be to be that close and that near to someone he so desperately loves. He would trade his whole being to be that glove. Now, whatever you think about it, you'd go, This brother loves Juliet, desires Juliet, wants to be near Juliet, would trade everything he could to be near her. Oh, to be a sparrow or a swallow if it meant that I could dwell with you in your altar. You know that place where sacrifices are made and now my sins are forgiven and I have peace with God and in that moment in that altar where I'm right with God, if I could dwell there, I'd stay there forever. I'd put my address right there by your altar in peace with you, the forgiveness of sins, right relationship. I'd live there forever. Whatever you could say about this psalmist, you'd go, this man loves God, wants God, desires God, would trade everything he had to be near God. How about you? This man does not merely believe a set of beliefs that he can check because Christianity is not a set of doctrine that you take a test on. This man's desires expose that over and above everything else, he wants God. How about you? He doesn't even just want the things of God. He doesn't even want things from God. He wants God. Because you know how that can be fuzzy in our heads. Like we could want the things of God. We could want the forgiveness of our sins. That's a good thing. And we could want peace and we could want eternal life. And we could want to not go to hell. We could want even the things of we could want ministry and not want God. He wants God. He loves God. He desires God over and above everything else. Who he wants is God, and where he wants to be more than anywhere else is wherever God is. How about you? And I'd say to you, that question that we'd answer in our soul might be one of the most important questions we ever answer because it can expose whether we're a pretender or whether we're real. Because while we can fake a great number of things, we can't seem to hide what we really want. Our desires expose our spiritual condition. And if you feel even the slightest tremor of your poverty of desire, that you don't desire as much as you ought or want to, then you'll see with me the desperate state we find ourselves in and how we're asking God to produce in us a desire for more of his presence, that we might love his presence more. There's a second thing this psalm shows us, and that's this, that God's presence is better than any place else. God's presence is better than any place else. The other thing you can't miss in this psalm is that for this psalmist, there is nowhere he'd rather be than where God is. The way he says it is this in verse 10. He says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Hear that again. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, anywhere else. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house than dwell in the tents of wickedness. There is no place this psalmist would rather be than in God's presence. So much so that the way he describes it is, I would trade a thousand days without you for one day with you. I would trade one day with you for a millennium of days without you. If you gave this psalmist the choice of a king-size bed in a penthouse without God or a sleeping bag at the entrance of God's house, he'd ask you, where do you want me to lay the sleeping bag? He would rather be at the foothold, at the threshold, at the door and doorstep of God's house than live without God. For him, that trade would be no problem. He would give up a thousand days without God for one day With him, When I think of this, I'm reminded of a a scene from the book of Exodus. Exodus is earlier in our Bible. If you've ever read the book of Exodus or know that story, it's where God rescues the people of Israel out of Egypt. And if you remember the story, God shows up in Egypt with great might and power. He shows up with plagues and signs and wonders without the people ever slinging a, a spear or raising a sword or without them doing anything through no work of theirs. He rescues them from the most powerful people in the world. And how do the people respond to God's gracious salvation? Not with love and loyalty, not with gratitude and gratefulness. Literally, when their leader Moses is delayed a bit long and they don't know what to do with themselves, they end up making a calf and they bow down and worship it as their God and as their Savior. Well, in Exodus 33, right after the golden calf, there's this scene where God gets so fed up and angry and in his judgment with this rebellious people who will not respond to him with love and loyalty, that he says to their leader Moses, Moses, here's the deal. You take the people and go into the promised land. Now the promised land, the promised land is literally like heaven on earth. The promised land is this land where it's literally called the land of milk and honey. Like the sweetest of land, the land where everything you want is in abundance. There's grapes the size of watermelons in the promised land. In fact, God even says, I'm going to send my angel in front of you, and he will clear out your enemies so you'll never have danger in the promised land. So you think of the promised land. The promised land means you can walk through any street of the promised land and you'll never worry about your danger. Any time of day or night, you'll be totally safe. There'll be peace within the promised land, prosperity within the promised land, watermelon-sized grapes in the promised land, abundance and pleasure and everything you could possibly want. And God says to Moses, you take the people and you go. Here's the only catch. I'm not coming with you. So here's the question. If you were offered heaven without God, would you take it? Now, before you answer that quickly and before you say no, 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 would you consider for a second? If you were offered heaven, as in everything that heaven has to promise you, the forgiveness of sin so you'll never feel guilty again, eternal life so you'll never die again, eternal gladness so you'll never shed tears again, peace in all your relationships so that you'll never have conflict again, that the world will be in peace, that there will be abundance and pleasure forevermore, the prosperity that you've always desired. You will lack for nothing, miss nothing, save God. Would you take it? And I'd have to tell you, our country and culture and world screams absolutely because you know what I just described? I described the American dream. The American dream is to have everything that you could possibly have be as safe as you could possibly be without the constraints of a God who would rule over you and bother you with his presence and his rules and bind you with his lordship, if you could remove all that and have, if you could have heaven without God, would you take it? And in fact, if you come into a Christianity that essentially is here because you don't want to go to hell, I want you to to consider that's the kind of Christianity you've taken. Like, if you were told Believe in Jesus, you won't go to hell. Or don't, and you'll go to hell. You go, all right, I guess I'll believe that. Because I'd rather prefer not to go to hell. But, but here, that's what's being offered to Moses. He's literally offering him, you will have the promised land without God. And here's what Moses says. Exodus 33, verse 15, you, got, you can look at it later. He says, and Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And Sefma Road, would you pay attention to where here is? Here is the wilderness. Here is the desert where the people got bit by serpents and where the ground opened up and swallowed a bunch of them and where there's a scarcity of bread and water, and where enemies always seem to be attacking. And yet Moses is saying, I would rather have one day in the wilderness with God than a thousand days in the promised land without him. In fact, for Moses, a promised land without God is hell. A promised land without God is hell. The American dream without God is hell. Because for Moses, if you gave him everything and held back God, you'd hold back from him the one thing he wants the most. And you'd hold back from him the one thing that is best of all. You see, here's the offer of Christianity. The offer of Christianity, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just, if you believe in Jesus, you won't go to hell when you die. It's rather the offer of Christianity. The good news of the good news is Jesus died to give you God. There's a difference that ultimately Jesus didn't just die to keep you from a bad thing. Jesus died to give you the best thing. He didn't just die to keep you from hell. He died to give you God, to give you access to God. To give you the best thing your soul needs, which is God himself. He died to bring you to where God is, and where God is, is heaven. And when God is central, then everything else can be tasted for the sweetness therein. Then the forgiveness of sins, and peace with one another, and the shalom, and the watermelon-sized grapes, they all become right when God is first and God is foremost. Let me read you one quote from John Piper. He says it really well. Listen to this. He says, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above God. And the people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. Isn't that right? Jesus didn't die so that we might have the forgiveness of our sins and then give ourselves to lesser loves. He died so that he might purchase for us an affection for God and he might put in us a desire for God. So that if you and I would be happy if heaven in heaven if Christ were not there, we won't be there because Christianity is not a set of beliefs. It's a desire. It's a religion of desire where you and I want God more than anything else. If you feel with me the poverty of your own soul and the need for God to produce in you a greater hunger for him, then that's what we want to do, is we want to consider this and we want to pray. What I want to do now is not let this linger up here. Okay, we want to seek God's presence more. How do you do that on Monday morning? How do you do that on Wednesday afternoon? And what does that look like on Saturday? So to that end, I'm going to invite Binu and Laurel and Brett to come. And these folks are coming, particularly I want you to hear, not because they're experts on what it looks like to seek God, particularly because they're ordinary. I mean, you can't get more ordinary than Laurel or Brett. But the point would be, that's a compliment to them. The point would be, they're a vision for what just our lives look like? Just ordinary, normal Christians, what does it look like for us to seek God, and what would that look like in our lives day to day? So I'm going to invite them to come and share some thoughts on what this might practically look like, and then we'll pray together.